time on verse 5 today, but I want to explain a little bit about this particular passage. So I recently came across a very old advertisement for cough syrup, 100 years ago or so. And uh, I, I looked at the active ingredients. This bottle of cough syrup are as follows. Alcohol, cannabis, chloroform, and morphine. And I, I read that and thought, well, you know, they just don't, they just don't make it like they used to, you know. <laughs> It, it, it reminds me of something I've observed in my lifetime, and that is just generally, in many respects, the world is just a safer place than it used to be. These days, it's very common to see a child riding a bike with his helmet on. When I was a kid, if you wore a helmet while riding your bike, they immediately sent you to Marine boot camp to toughen up. The, the world is just safer in many physical ways than it used to be. Uh, the question presented before us this morning from this particular text is the following. Is the church safer from wolves than it used to be? Is the church safer from wolves than it used to be? That's really the subject of this section of 1 Timothy that we find ourselves in. Now, I want to give you a bit of context before we get into that particular passage. In a previous encounter with the Ephesian elders, recorded in Acts 20, Paul gathers the elders of Ephesus together and says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. Now, in my calculation of the time that spans between that and 1 Timothy, we have something like five years later or so. The Acts 20 event, Paul gathers the elders and says, pay careful attention to the flock, for I know that after my departure, wolves will come in. And now, something like five years later, we see in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, Paul writing to Timothy saying, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So back to my question. Is the church safer these days, especially from wolves? Well, I think we find in Scripture the following, that the safety of the church does not so much depend on the presence or absence of wolves. The safety of the church does not so much depend on the presence or absence of wolves, but on the presence or absence of faithful, manly shepherds. 
It is not the wolves that pose the primary threat to the church. It is the presence or absence, the absence of faithful masculine shepherding that presents the real danger to the church. Wherever there are sheep gathered, there will be predators. Gathered sheep are simply an irresistible target to a predator. And so the wolves are simply a part of our experience and will always be. The problem isn't the wolves. The problem is not that the wolves have increased in number over the years. I'm not sure they have. My eschatology suggests maybe they have decreased, in fact. But who can trust my eschatology? The real issue isn't the increase in the wolves, it's the decrease in the shepherds. But what we see in 1 Timothy is that this is not a new problem. The very existence of this particular text in 1 Timothy 1 tells us that the Ephesian church also had a shepherding crisis. It seems very likely, given the fact that this text exists, that the Ephesians, after being Ephesian elders, after being warned explicitly by Paul in Acts 20, did not do their job. Paul had warned them, but it appears they were not up to the task of wolf fighting. Had they fled? In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the hired hand who looks every bit like a shepherd until what? Until the wolf appears. And then the hired hand, who cares nothing for the sheep, flees. And by the way, in most churches, the pastors don't leave the church. They flee the controversy. They, they flee the conflict, not the context. So is that what happened to these Ephesian elders? Did they flee? Or did they themselves become the wolves when Jesus describes elsewhere, wolves dressed as sheep clothing. We, we don't know why they failed, but we do know that they had failed. Because what we see in the text that I just read is that Paul had to bring in outside authority to deal with this issue. The elders were not up to the task. And so we see in 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, here's some good news. This appears to have worked. Again, some of this depends on my figuring of the biblical dates and so forth, but if we turn to Revelation chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to do that. If we turn to Revelation chapter 2, we see Jesus speaking to the Ephesian church through John, saying the following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up 
bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We won't be talking about them. Not much to say. We don't know much. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church had, it seems, from Revelation 2, through the prolonged efforts of Timothy, overcome the wolves. Now, before we leave this passage in Revelation, I, I want to make one interesting observation. Jesus complains, in, in addition to the affirmation which he issues on the front and back end of his message, he has a complaint in verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So we tend to think about a tension between love and truth. Or perhaps even explain that particular complaint in some way like this. That in the pursuit of doctrinal purity, they forgot to be loving. And see, in that, we're showing some presuppositions that we have about the nature of truth and love. To assume that those two things are in a dichotomy uh, reveals some presuppositions that we have. And maybe there's something to that, but I think there's something more to play, more at play. I want to go back now to 1 Timothy and I want to read verses 3 and 4 again, but we're going to add verse 5. So verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What is motivating Paul, and by extension Timothy, to fight the wolves is love. The aim of the charge is love. So, going back to Revelation 2, at least mentally for a moment, when Jesus commends them, for successfully fighting against the wolves, but inserts in the middle of that commendation a call back to love, I think what he's doing there is he's saying, the thing you need to fight well into the future has diminished. If you don't have love, you don't have the essential tool you need to fight as you have fought so well. And there's more to that. Let's read our text again in 1 Timothy. And we'll start in verse 5 this time and go through verse 7. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
So now we have an added element. In addition to love being the, the motivation for men to stand up and fight for the truth, we also see that love is a preservation to keep people from wandering from the truth. You see that in verse 7 or verse 6? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Why is Paul fighting? Why is Timothy called to fight? Love. And then the very next verse, verse 6. Not only is it the motivation to fight, but in fact, if people would stay in this love, which Paul describes, if they wouldn't swerve from it, they would be preserved from error. Verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, departing, deviating, leaving. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, so on and so forth. So not only is love the motivating force with which we fight against the wolves, but love is a preserving force that keeps people from deviating into heresy. So the key verse to this text, even though there is so much to talk about, in this particular section. I'm supposed to cover all the way to verse 11. I'm only covering verse 5, really, today. And it it seems to me that it is the central idea of this particular section. This love will compel leaders to fight rather than flee. Entering into conflict takes courage if you were to meditate for even five minutes on some of the most courageous acts you've seen in history, you would always find love behind that act of courage. Love for freedom, love for your family. Many of the men who got off those boats and stormed the beaches of Normandy found courage because they were fighting for what they loved. And secondly, we see this text in verse 6 showing us clearly where heresy stems from to begin with. Where do wolves come from? They come from people who abandon the love that Paul is describing in verse 5. So now I think maybe we see more clearly why in the middle of his commendation in Revelation 2, Jesus says, you've got to make sure You've got that love that you had before because it was that love that allowed you to successfully not only fight the wolves but to remain faithful yourselves. So we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time on this verse, verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I will simply say this, if you are a member of a church and you are pursuing those things and living in those things, you are part of the solution. And if you are a member of a church and you are not pursuing these things, you are part of the problem. Either because you will not fight when you are supposed to or because you will become yourself theologically and devotionally deviant. So, one more thing about this verse, which... It's a bit of a, just an interesting aside. It's really quite interesting to find a verse that includes 
the ingredients for love. It's really quite something to see this. Uh, there's an old jazz standard. That's the recipe for making love. A little bit of a double entendre in that song. A little bit of me and a whole lot of you. Add a dash of kisses and a dozen roses too. Then let it rise for a hundred years or two. And that's the recipe for making love. It does, no, I'm not, I, could go, I could keep going. You know, we're told all over scripture to love. And we're told where love comes from in, in a macro sense. For this is love, not that we first loved him, but that he loved us and gave his life for, for us. We're, 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 love is described. Love is commanded. We're given sort of an overarching kind of macro description of where love comes from. It comes from God loving us first. But this is an interesting verse because we've got a recipe here. You see that in verse 5? The aim of our charge is love that issues from. The word issues just stems from or flows from. It comes from. It's essentially these three things when working in harmony. This is what you might call like a triadic formula. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. When these three things are working, they produce love. Now, this is a remarkable idea. It actually allows us to lean into becoming more loving, right? And it also kind of gives us some antibodies to the way that that word love is so often misused. If someone's describing love, you might ask, oh, you mean the thing that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? It's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Oh, well, that's not, that's not, that's not agape love. Agape love comes from these things. So let's get into it. Let's look at these three ideas. And the first one is a pure heart. The Greek word for pure here in verse 5 is katharis. The origin of our English word, catharsis. And I really want to take a moment to attempt to wax eloquently about what I would describe as the catharsis of God. A person becomes quite something, something more than they ever thought they would be after repeatedly for a few decades going through the catharsis of God. What, is, what does it mean? What does catharsis mean? Well, it's often translated cleansed, but it's also this idea of relief and also this idea of conclusion. A final act of a good movie or book will include some version of catharsis. And if you've ever watched a movie well, with my wife and it doesn't end with catharsis because some of the postmodern factory of sadness kinds of movies intentionally avoid catharsis, she just gets so upset. She's like, what, what did you do to me? You, you, you gave me two hours of watching and no catharsis. Catharsis means to clean up, to resolve, to clear. And I want you to understand that Functionally, as an individual human being, all of the progress and godliness you will make in your lifetime comes by participating in the catharsis of God. Probably the classic 
evidentiary text for the catharsis of God is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse there, that's the word catharsis. When we confess our sins, we are entering into the catharsis of God. And as we confess our sins, we find that he is faithful and just to forgive us. Friends, I don't know what you think about grace or how you think about grace, but the last word I tend to think of when I think of grace and mercy or forgive is justice. What is the word justice doing in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Well, only this, that through Jesus' death on the cross, God enters into a covenant with you. And he promises to apply the righteousness of Jesus to your account. God has entered a deal with you. If you have called out to him with a sincere heart to save you, he enters into a deal with you, and there's a new legal system that you get to live in. So that when you ask God for forgiveness, he, out of justice, out of justice because of what Jesus Christ has earned, he forgives you. And not only forgives you, because that's, that's not the word catharsis, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. One of the things that we really misunderstand about grace, we sometimes think that it is simply restoring us back to what we were before we sinned. And this is absolutely wrong. Every single time you encounter grace, you are a better person. You are a stronger person. You are more like the person God created you to be. If you've ever been in any kind of serious relationship, particularly a marriage relationship, there's this amazing reality that happens the first time you really have to forgive the other one or you really have to receive forgiveness. And what, what results is not a restoration back to what was before, but a leveling up of the whole relationship itself. And friends, if you would grow in godliness, you must rinse and repeat over and over again, go through the catharsis of God. Now, I will just tell you, if you turn your sins into biology or victimology or psychology or personality, if you delude your very understanding of sin to where it's literally not sin anymore, you have shut yourself out from the catharsis of God. The way you enter into the catharsis of God, the way you develop a pure heart, is to first and foremost confess your sins. And so Paul is saying that a man who calls upon God for forgiveness frequently is becoming a kind of man capable of biblical love. A man who frequently calls upon God for forgiveness is a man who is becoming capable of biblical love. And so why would it be so important for you and I to keep the biblical understanding of sin intact? Why would it be so important to oppose all efforts to delude that sense? It is not the kindness that it appears to be. 
It is locking people out of the very life-giving transformation that God offers as we actively participate in the gospel. And friends, when you let your Christian friend walk in sins you consider to be too little to mention, you're not doing them a favor. You're keeping them out of the catharsis of God. And the catharsis of God doesn't simply offer forgiveness. It makes you better. It makes you more loving. In 1 Timothy 3, we see the word charge. It appears frequently in the pastoral epistles. And the word means a militaristic use of naked positional authority. No manipulation I'm in charge, do what I say. That's what the word charge is happening there. How can that, the aim of that, be love? Friends, for the man or the woman who has gone through the catharsis of God over and over and over again, it is absolutely an easy thing to call someone else to repent because you've repented and you felt how marvelous the catharsis of God is is. To call someone to repentance is not mean. To call someone to repentance is loving. Why? Because we have a God who is faithful and just under the terms of the covenant established through Christ to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So one of the ways that we can both be loving enough to confront error and also loving enough to not succumb to error is to engage in this idea of the catharsis of God. How was Paul able to exert so much authority in a loving way? Well, 1 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says this, for the love of Christ controls us. It's a love that he has experienced, not simply in a theological sense, not simply by hearing sermons about it, but he's living a life of the confession of sin and the receiving of forgiveness and the cleansing of all unrighteousness. He's keeping his list short. And so he could say the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A person who experiences the catharsis of God frequently and personally is eager to call others to it, even if it costs him something. Because if that person does repent, if that person does confess their sins, they're going to experience marvelous grace. Not just a grace that resets everything back before you committed your error, but a grace that builds and strengthens. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So that's a little bit about pure heart. What about good conscience? As a man experiences the catharsis of God, his actual behavior, because of the power of grace, becomes more and more Christ-like. And as he becomes more and more Christ-like, his conscience begins to affirm rather than condemn. There is almost nothing, I said that love is deeply associated with courage, 
there's almost nothing more associated with boldness than a good conscience. Here I'd like to point something out to you that I think you might be interested in. Going so far, going as far back as Cicero, so about a hundred years or a little bit more than when Paul is writing this. Paul would have most definitely read his Cicero. Going back as far as Cicero, the conscience, a guilty conscience, was blamed on two things: bad behavior and the furies. The furies. These were essentially feminine spirits that came to torture people with their guilt. And there were three of them. One was typified by endless anger. Another was typified by jealous rage. And the third of our little triad of vengeful women was typified by vengeful destruction. So you've got three female demonic kind of forces, one typifying endless anger, the other typifying jealous rage, and the third vengeful destruction. And these furies were thought by Cicero and other classical thinkers to come and torment the guilty. And so there is a sense, I think it's very helpful to understand that what a guilty conscience is in many respects is an open door to spiritual warfare. And it's an open door to hesitancy and it's an open door to being a wimp. So to go in a Jordan Peterson direction, I might try the accent. I won't do it. I'll just think it. To go in a Jordan Peterson direction, it might serve you to know that the mythology behind the creation of these furies came into being through the castration of their father. And it might also serve you to know that there was a fourth entity which arose from that instant as well, in addition to the furies, someone named Aphrodite, who was the lustful seductress. And so really in this one mythological story, you have the castration of a father and the creation of four tormenting spirits. Lust and the furies. Now to go in a haunted cosmos direction, we could certainly say, or we could certainly ask, if perhaps the Greeks and Romans were talking about real spiritual entities. But to go any farther in that question would be to actually break the rules that Paul lays down in 1 Timothy 3, or 1 Timothy 1. So I got to stop. But I will tell you this. There are men everywhere who should be fighting who are not fighting because they are constantly hit between, like a ping pong ball, Aphrodite and the Furies. And a man must have his conscience in good repair in order to fight in love. A man without a conscience in good repair is unlikely to fight at all, but if he does fight, he will often not fight in love. Good conscience has to do with a readiness, a boldness. And more often than not, a man who is being slapped around by the furies 
after spending an afternoon with Aphrodite, doesn't show up for the fight at all. There's a massive book, highly controversial, that a, a Catholic theologian wrote called uh, Libido Dominindi. And in that book, he writes, the only way to deal with guilt among those who refuse to repent is the palliation, the comfort that comes from social activism. Involvement in social movements like abortion rights and gay, gay rights have become a way of troubling, of calming troubled consciences. Essentially, if you will go to God for the catharsis, you will have a good conscience. But if you will not go to God for catharsis, you will back down from the fight. And if you need to prove your love, quote unquote, you will go fight the wrong battles. The last thing Paul says here is a sincere faith. We need a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Very little needs to be said about this. It is as it is presented. It simply means genuine, unsophisticated belief. Another way of thinking it, of sincere faith, is unapologetic trust in God. Another way of thinking about it is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Listen, friends, a man with a pure heart, who's moved through the catharsis of God over and over and over again, and has a good conscience, and believes what a kindergartner believes about Jesus. That's a man who is going not only to not fall into error, but fight it when he sees it. One of the most interesting things in common that so many of these happy warriors in church history have had is that they have a kind of childishness to them. They are, in many respects, playful and cheerful, and this playfulness can often get them in Twitter trouble. But the main idea at work is, is if you have a sincere faith, you don't take yourself super seriously. And if you don't take yourself super seriously, you're not constantly trying to preserve your little precious self triaging all the fights to see which one would be worth your incredibly valuable reputation. You just stand up for truth because you have this simple childlike faith. A sincere faith, an unapologetic faith. Back when we were traveling to Zambia quite a bit, we would the orphan's favorite song, and of course, you know, there's something about like if you're if you're born in Africa, you can immediately sing in perfect pitch. And so there's, you know, 200 orphans that would just love to sing. And the song they would sing most often is, My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. Friends, at the heart of a happy warrior, the shepherd who stands against the wolves, and who himself doesn't get seduced by them, is a simple childlike faith that says, 
Like David said as he, this is what David sang as he was about to decapitate Goliath. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing, you know. He made the trees. He made the seas. He made the elephants too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his. The rivers are his. The skies are his handiwork too. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Why do so many people shrink back? The wolves are not really that scary. Why? Why do so many shrink back? They don't believe that song. In order to be the kind of person who can, in love, confront error and avoid it, one must believe in a God who makes elephants and mountains and seas. And most importantly, going back to the catharsis, one must believe in a God who changes people, who saves them by telling them the truth, who shows them their error, appeals to their will, and exercises divine power to transform their hearts. To be the kind of person Paul is calling us to be, we must believe in a God who changes people through the average means of people like you and me, people who don't take themselves very seriously, people who have time and time and time and time again confessed their sin and seen God faithful and just in Christ to forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Just average people with pure hearts, good consciences, and sincere faith who say, you know what? The aim of this is love. But I need to tell you the truth. Well, in choosing to focus on just one verse, we have left out a massive amount of this passage, and we've left it relatively unexplored. We did nothing with the specifics of this heresy, and we did nothing with the teaching of Paul about the proper use of the law. And if that's going to get covered, I'll have to do it via podcast because next week, Dub is preaching through verses 12 through 20. And I want to read those verses to you now because I want you to see all that I've just said on display in the words of Paul, in the life of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Where do strong Christian men come from. Strong Christian men crawl out of the flood of God's grace and mercy. Strong Christian men emerge out of soaking wet with the forgiveness and the love and the kindness of God. And they emerge ready to do battle because they have a pure heart, a good conscience, 
and a sincere faith. This saying, Paul continues, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I don't do my combat thinking I'm better than you. I do my combat thinking I'm worse than you. And if God can forgive me, he can forgive you. And if God can show me my error, he can show you your error. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's where the sincere faith kicks into cosmic overdrive. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and ever, forever and ever. Amen. This charge, it's the word again, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may, not, they may learn not to blaspheme. And all of this is happening in love. So we have the table before us. And the Lord's Supper is Jesus' gift to give you catharsis. It is Jesus' gift for you to come to a reckoning, not with the biological proclivities that make you act weird, not with personality, not with victimology, but with your sin. This is a table for sinners. And it's a table that is set aside to remind you of the justice of God that now works for those who have put their faith in Jesus. That if you are, confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So what can happen over years and years of weekly Sabbath communion taking is the catharsis, the conscience, and a sincere faith emerge as we approach humbly as people in need of the very thing presented here and thank Jesus once again for the incredible gospel to which we have been called. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, before you come, take a moment. Work through 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then you come, and you taste and see that the Lord is indeed very good.
ready, please stand with us and let's respond in song together. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wound inside which flowed be a sin, the double cure. Save from Oh uh-huh. 